This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome back to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Thanks so much for being here with me this evening. It's always my pleasure to be here with you, educating you about subjects that are hopefully pertinent to your lives and and important in life so that we can live the best life possible, so that we can live a healthy life. And I think information is power. And sometimes people may or may not know about particular things or it might tweak something for you. Um, as uh, Andrew mentioned earlier on the program, I've been traveling quite a bit. And so I see a lot of people a lot of the time. And a lot of people are on their iPhones a lot of the time. Just today, for example, I was in, I think I was in Denver. I was had a layover in Denver. And I was going to the gate and there were these two... They were probably 20 years old, two 20-year-olds in front of me on the, the the moving sidewalk. And they took up the entire moving sidewalk so that nobody could pass. If you have any idea of what I am like, I am a fast walker. I want to get to A to B as fast as possible. And so I'm probably jogging along that little walking. I, no, I wasn't. But um, I, I was moving fast. I didn't have much time. And these two... Uh, just took up the entire space and they were on their iPhone the entire time. And I'm not the type to say, I I know you're going to find this hard to believe, but I'm not the type to say, excuse me, can I pass, you know, come over on the left? No, that's not me. I'll wait instead. And of course, but the voices in my head were saying, for crying out loud, you know, do they know? Do they, they are completely unaware and and I actually find a lot of pleasure in just observing this behavior because I love human behavior. And and so I'm just thinking they have walked this entire, or well, they stood the entire walking sidewalk, moving sidewalk, and took up the whole place so nobody could pass them and they were on their iPhones. And that's what I see a lot. I see people on iPhones in restaurants. I see people on iPhones. I saw an entirely, entire family at a hotel sitting in the lobby, five of them, all of them on their iPhones. Nobody's talking to one another anymore, except for me. I'm talking here every Sunday night, two hours solid. Um, But you know what? Is this the best thing? This latest generation, born after 1995, was pretty much born with a smartphone in their hands. And as a result, teens today are more depressed, anxious, and lonelier than ever. And that is according to one researcher from California. Jean Twenge. She has done uh, research around uh, demographics during adolescence, different demographics during adolescence from baby boomers to millennials. And everybody falls within one of those categories. And so she is finding that this group of teens is lonely, which is loneliness is unhappiness, can lead to unhappiness. Uh, She's done her research at San Diego State. She's a professor of psychology. And the smartphone, she says, has really shaped this generation. And parents can really learn from this experience. There are certain good things that come as a result of being that connected, uh, information that people can get. Uh, She did a survey of 8th graders, 10th graders, and 12th graders in the U.S. It's a nationally representative sample, and it was a very 
large sample, and she has actually, she's got data on 11 million people that goes back several decades. So you can compare teens and young adults now to the teens and young adults 10 years ago, 20 years ago, or in some cases, 40 or 50 years ago. So this generational, there are so many generational differences, and you hear that from one generation to the next, we'll say, oh, that this new generation, what's up with them? Um, But there's a big shift, and she saw a big shift in and around the year 2011 and 2012. She saw she saw some large and sudden changes amongst teens in how they spent their time and how they said they were feeling. And so there was a sudden spike in the number of teens who said they felt lonely or that they felt left out. And there was also a sudden spike in depression and a sudden decrease in happiness or life satisfaction. And this had uh, she looked at the economic data as well, and this did not appear to be related to socioeconomic status or the state of the uh, of the country, um, the economics, the economic aspect of the country. So, because you do have to consider those economic factors, but this happened to be at a time in 2012 when the U.S. economy had recovered from that 20, 2008 recession. Things were getting better, so it didn't seem to be related to those economic cycles. Um, so the also according to her research, uh, in, during that time, 2012 is the year when the percentage of Americans who owned a smartphone was about 50%. And so that was when it became very common. It was, uh, you know, we're starting to see lots of people having smartphones. Today, 90% of people have a smartphone in their hands. And so according to her research, four or more hours a day is when the most negative effects show up. And she felt that it was because it becomes, it crowds our time. And it crowds the time. When you think of it, four hours a day, so say they're not allowed to use it in school. Say there are some schools that do that, because I know that a lot of most kids take their smartphones to school and most kids are using them during class. But say there's a teacher who actually disciplines the kids. <laughs> you have to pay for that private school um, and says you can't actually bring the iPhone into class. But if if not, you have four hours of time and the, the kids start to see troubles. And because that four hours of time can be they might not get home from school till four, five o'clock. And then it's, you know, really their entire evening is spent being on the phone. And. Crowds are time for having recreational time, seeing friends, and as we were talking about earlier, sleeping enough. Most teens need about nine hours of sleep a night, and among 17 and 18-year-olds, more than 50% are sleeping less than seven. And this also has spiked since 2012, according to her data. And, you know, kids are getting smartphones earlier and earlier, And so this is going to actually impact their lives much sooner. So there is some evidence that smartphones are making adolescents unhappy. And the evidence for the happiness decline and the increase in depression and even suicide is very strong. There is arguably a mental health crisis on our hands. And this can be related, may very well be related to smartphones. And of course, we're not so great about saying no to our children or disciplining them or fighting with them to take the phone away before they go into bed because they've got a reason that they have to be on it. And it's it's part of uh, who they are and their peer groups. And 
and their friends and they're lining up this time and what they're going to be doing. But those teens who spend a lot of time online and on social media are less happy and those who spend a lot of time with their friends in person and sleeping and exercising are happier. So a well-balanced life, once again, is important. And so if you see your child spending a lot of time or increasing times on social media or on their iPhone or they're having it at dinner, they're taking it to bed with them, you know, you've got to put down, you've got to put your foot down because mental health is created and that is created by getting good sleep. It is created by eating properly, getting exercise and limiting the time that your children are on their smartphones. I am Maureen McGrath and you are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. There's a number of tough subjects that I cover and one in particular that I don't think I cover enough. I don't think we can talk about this subject enough, but lately I've seen a number of men in my clinical practice who have come in who are experiencing many tragedies in life, living living double lives, leading secret lives, suffering from depression, attempts at death by suicide as a result of their sexual abuse as a child. One in six boys will be sexually abused as a child. Boys and men can be sexually used or abused, and it has nothing to do with how masculine they are. Many boys may feel like they like the attention they're getting, or they may even get sexually aroused during the abuse, or even sometimes wanted the attention or sexual contact. This does not mean he wanted or liked being manipulated or abused, or that any part of what happened in any way was his responsibility or his fault. Sexual abuse harms both boys and girls in ways that are similar and different, but oftentimes it's different in between each boy. Their experiences and their life plays out very differently. They're equally as harmful. Dare I say it can be even more harmful for boys because of the societal expectation that men can't be victims. Everyone absorbs that myth to some extent. It's central to masculine gender socialization, and boys pick up on it very early in life. This myth does imply that a boy or man who has been sexually used or abused will never be a real man. Not true. Our society expects males to be able to protect themselves, to be courageous, to be strong, to be tough. Successful men are never de- are depicted as never being vulnerable, either physically or emotionally. Yet many men, many successful men, live with this secret, never tell anyone. And then just things just, just can't hold the beach balls under the water as they grow up, as they get into relationships, as they mature. And I've seen a number of men in my clinical practice who have experienced a lot of tragedy, a lot of trauma, and a lot of difficulties, and they're not even really able to pinpoint why. They may mention that they had been sexually abused as a child or an adolescent. Whether a boy is gay, straight, or bisexual, a boy's sexual orientation is neither the cause nor the result And that's the important part. It is never the cause nor the result of sexual abuse. I had a patient one time in my clinical practice who was sexually abused repeatedly by his father. And he, when he grew up, uh, he was attracted to women and he thought that there was something wrong with him because he thought that sex was supposed to be between two men. 
I have men in my clinical practice who are in sexless marriages, something else I don't talk about enough from the perspective of women being rejected by the man in their life, in their life. Many women will experience low sexual desire, but men experience low sexual desire as well. And this is often the catalyst for getting help. They, a woman will be in a relationship with a man for 5, 10, 15 years, and they will be in a sexless relationship and never having known that her male partner was sexually abused as a child. And this can lead to lifelong anxiety disorders. This can lead to low sexual desire in relationships, and it can lead to many other problems, depression, suicide, substance use and abuse, living a secret life, living a double life, seeking sex from other men, women, prostitutes, whomever, but living a perfect life, saying that they would be perceived as the most honest person in the world, yet living a total lie. Most boys who are sexually abused will not go on to sexually abuse others. Another fact about sexual abuse, girls and women can sexually abuse boys. The boys are never lucky in this case. The boys are exploited and harmed. This can be a lifelong tragedy for people. Whether you agree with the definition of masculinity or not, Boys are not men. Boys are children. They are weaker and more vulnerable than those who sexually exploit or abuse them. People who use their larger size, their strength, their knowledge, their threats, their manipulation, their coercion of boys into unwanted sexual experiences and then using threats to keep those boys silent. These are usually done from a position of authority from a, an uncle, a coach, a teacher, a religious leader. It can be from a parent as well. Status, an admired athlete, a social leader, an older brother. They use whatever means they have to reduce resistance, such as providing special attention, giving privileges, money, or other gifts, or promises, or bribes. Many are threatened to stay silent, and many never tell anyone, which is often the saddest aspect of it. They never told anybody, and then they lived, went on to live a horrific life. These can impact uh, an intimate relationship or a marriage tremendously. It plays out in a number of different ways. It can play out in feeling there was something different about you from everybody else. Men put on a mask, a mask that no power on earth could ever tear off. They can have problems with relationships throughout, with intimate relationships, with girlfriends, with women, with wives. They can lead double lives, secret lives. They'll hide. They may use substances they may obsessively use the gym. They have classic trauma psychology with other people or other intimate relationships where they approach and retreat, approach and retreat. So they want to be in the relationship, but they can't. They hurt many people in the process unwittingly. 
their depressions can last for months, even years, and where suicidal impulses sprout up. They may attempt violent suicides. They may be fearful that, that they may, in fact, die by suicide, attempt to take their own lives. They feel that there's no way out. A lot of the men tell me that they replay the narrative in their head, I must be gay, I must be gay. I liked it, I enjoyed it, I had an erection, I must be gay, I'm not gay, I'm attracted to women. And so they are constantly either drowning out that voice using substances or they're constantly trying to tell themselves that they are not gay. And if they are gay, that is fine. They, um, that's not a narrative that they will be playing out in their head. But they will blame themselves, feel that they are at fault. Um, it's very confusing for people. Uh, it's difficult for people to hold down jobs. It's difficult for people to manage everything in life because the anxiety takes over. And so it's difficult for them to balance their checkbooks, to um, deal with their homes, keep their homes tidy and um, in good order, in working order. It's difficult for them to breathe, to live. There is help. That's my biggest message. It's a lifelong journey. Uh, in even telling somebody, finally telling somebody can release the pain for you. It's, it's a start, uh, but I think the most important thing about this conversation that it was not your fault. I'm Maureen McGrath. You are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. <coughs> Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. We're in the final strokes of the program here. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, relationship myths and also how to put on a condom properly because... Many people, according to research, don't know how to do that properly. And so there are some rules around that. Uh, number one is you got to use a condom for the entire sexual experience, the whole thing. Many couples put the condom on too late, remove it too soon, or both. So you got to put it on the penis, just in case you didn't know, before intercourse, and remain. it needs to remain on the penis throughout intercourse or the entire time that the penis is in contact with the vagina, the anus, or the mouth. And so remember, condoms are considered to be effective for reducing the risk of unwanted pregnancies and sexually transmitted infections. Now, something else that you might not have thought about, you need to use a condom for each type of intercourse with that person, okay? So if you have vaginal intercourse and then you decide to have oral sex after that, you should be putting on a new condom before the oral sex begin. Of course, begins. Of course, you're in if you're in a monogamous relationship and you know that it's monogamous, um, and it's just not monogamous for the moment, um, and you know that your sexual health history of your partner, uh, i.e., they're not cheating on you, uh, placing you at great risk um, for sexually transmitted infections, then you. You know, you can pretty much trust that uh, you don't need to use a condom. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about using those couples who need to use condoms. You need to open the condom package correctly. Don't use a sharp object because you could tear the condom. Don't use an expired condom or a condom that hasn't been stored properly. Condoms, like medications, have expiration dates and they can deteriorate. So you need to also store them in a cool, dry place, not sitting on them on your back 
pants pocket. Um, you need to ex- inspect every condom before you use it. So you don't want to use broken condoms. Many people do. They're so desperate. That's one word. Putting, uh, you, you also got to, uh, put the condom on properly. So you take the penis, the shaft of the penis, and you know what? You can use this as a playful exercise as well. So you can have your partner put the condom on you. Whether you need it or not, it can be kind of fun. Uh, so uh, in, uh, in other words, if you're in a monogamous trusting relationship and you don't typically use condoms, but it could be something that could increase the pleasure, except ex- especially something like the ribbed condom or, or um, the other types of uh, condoms that provide a little bit more sensation, pleasurable sensation. Um, so you, some people completely unroll the condom before putting it on. No, no, don't do that. Others didn't, others don't unroll it all the way to the base of the penis. Sometimes people don't squeeze air out from the tip or didn't leave enough space at the tip to catch the semen. Some, some men put condoms on inside out, go figure. And then they realize the error of their ways and then they take it off and, and put it on the other way, and that expose that could potentially expose your partner to pre-ejaculatory fluid, which can increase the risk of pregnancy or transmission of STIs. There's also lubricant issues. Many people don't use a lubricant. It's important because uh, when you don't use a lubricant, it can cause more friction and it can e- increase the odds of breaking your condom. And you got to use the right kind of lubricant as well. So you need to use water-based lubricants, uh, especially with latex condoms. Oil-based lubricants like petroleum, jelly, and mineral oil, which I know people use, but I can't believe it, uh, damage latex. Also, some people improperly withdraw and so they, you got to hold the rim of the condom when withdrawing, because if you don't, you increase the risk of leakage. And so it's really important that you know this and you educate your sons and daughters about this, uh, because this is important. It will be empowering for them and it will help to reduce unintended pregnancy and sexually transmitted infection. So that is quite important. You can give me a call if you want about relationships. If you're having an issue in your relationship, the number to call is one 9898 The phone lines are open, and I think they're working now. Uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's really important that we talk about these these issues, um, education of condoms, use of condoms. Some people think, parents think, oh, if I tell my child how to use a condom, how to put that on, uh, first of all, you have to make sure you know how to do it. Okay, that <laughs> goes without saying. But they're going to want to have sex sooner. It has nothing to do with them having sex any sooner. They're just going to be protected. Um, like like a lot of times there's questions about, um, should we educate our children about porn? Absolutely. Porn is free. That's why it's accessible to kids all over the planet. So you need to let them know that this is not the way intimacy is. This is not... It's how sex works. This is, uh, you let them know how much um, porn actors are paid. Actors and actresses get paid very little. Um, and so it's not real life. And they need to understand that. They need to know that. Porn can bring trouble in your relationship. Uh, I hear so many, I get so many emails from people. They're like, I've, I've, watch porn and I feel horrible and and I realize I have a porn addiction and they might be watching it twice a week. And, you know, so, you know, before you self-diagnose, it's probably a good idea to speak to somebody in the know 
uh, who understands um, that, you know what, most guys, I think it's like 99.9999% of men view porn. Uh, and women view porn as well. We, we just view different porn. We have different flavors, different tastes. That's all. Um, but you know what? Some certain things, misunderstanding, communication can bring issues in a relationship. And if you are having trouble in your relationship, you've probably gotten tons of advice from people. And anyone who's ever been married or knows someone who has been married believes they hold the secret to endless love. This is one of the ones that I hear all the time that I think this advice that has been given to so many people. Just go back and and remember what it was like when you first met. <laughs> Not going to work. Okay. Like 20 years later, it's like you can't even remember what it was like when you first met them, number one. And so as though that's going to solve all of your problems, as though that's going to solve the fact that he cheated on you, as though that's going to solve the fact that you're living beyond your means or you have financial problems, as though that's going to solve the substance use and abuse issues, it's not going to work. It's it's just um, – anyway, it's just – believe me, it's not going to work. You have to get to what the problem is and the whys around the problem. That's even more important than getting to the problem. So once you realize what the problem is, put it on the table, then realize it. Many people believe marriage is, is just a piece of paper, but there are tremendous psychological and physical benefits to being married. And it's a great source of health and wealth and longevity and ultimate welfare of children. Uh, it relates to a satisfying and healthy marriage. But you have to realize that conflict is not a sign that you're in a bad relationship. Conflict is inevitable in every single relationship. And conflict is there for a reason, and it's to improve your understanding of your partner. It usually arises from some missed effort to communicate, especially one person attempting to get emotionally closer to the other person. And there's also a number of discrepancies between partners around expectations, and you got to talk about those. So we have desire discrepancy. So there's the whole frequency thing. There's the whole she doesn't initiate. Forget it. She's never going to initiate. Men initiate. Um, and there's also issues around anger. That's a big one. Anger, guys, is the number one turnoff for women. It, it, and a lot of people have anger problems. And you know what? Women get angry too. But in my clinical practice, I see a lot of I hear a lot from women that their partner, their male partner, the husband, gets angry. And forget it. If you want to have sex, you have to deal with your anger. You need to get help with your anger issue. And you need to know why you have this anger issue. There is a couple of things. You know, when you get triggered, there's a space between that trigger and response. And in that space, so in other words, you don't have to react. You can respond. In that space is where we find growth and development. Also, keep in mind, you know, we have our ego and then we have how we feel about ourselves. And when there's this gap between uh, this egomania and an inferiority complex, which a lot of people have, they have that negative voice in their head, you know, the wider that gap is, the worse your relationship is going to be because you are going to be extremely difficult to live with. Because guess what? Love isn't enough, especially after children arrive. That can be, um, you know, that can just change everything in the bedroom from romance to fun sex to um, adventurous, making it an adventuresome priority. Um, but I've got Sherry on the line. Hello, Sherry. Hi, Sherry. Hello. Hello. Oh, hi, Sherry. How are you? I'm fine. Who's this? This is Maureen. 
<laughs> this is who you called. Oh, good. Just a sec. Let me turn my radio down. I'm freaking myself out. Okay. No need to freak out. See? Freaking out is never good. No. <laughs> In a relationship. No. So did you get a brief idea of why I'm calling? or Was that about married for 35 years, no sex for the last 16, how to yes. broach the subject? Yes. Yes. Have you have you not broached the subject in 16 years? I have broached the subject many, 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 many times. Okay. And um, I've even gone to the point, which was difficult to do, but to um, request from him, uh, if you're unable to have intercourse, there's no reason why you can't um, share pleasure with me as I have shared with him just because he wanted it over the years kind of thing. So there's been no sexual contact whatsoever, and it's gotten to the point now where passing ships in the night doesn't even cover it. Right. And it's very hard on you. It's it's almost harder on a woman to be denied sex from her male partner because it, it uh, hits at your femininity, your sexuality, your sense of your, yeah. your sexual self. He had a lot of um, medical problems. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I'm going to take, say, eight years off of that for a, a medical reason. Okay. Uh, the other eight years, there is no reason. Okay. Um, is there, are there any unresolved conflicts? Does he have erectile dysfunction? Does he have a history of sexual abuse? A differential diagnosis needs to be made, and, and it's through a sexual health assessment. I see. Um, that uh, would be important. Um, to, you know, and, and he, one fellow I had in my clinical practice this week, he said, I suppose I have to be honest with you in order for this to work. Mm -hmm. It's the most important thing, um, is, is honesty. And, and so, um, is there anything that you suspect? Could there be somebody else? No, um, he's now taking testosterone injections once a month, um, because his testosterone level had dropped down to zero. So again, I'm giving um, a little bit of um, leeway to him, but that's only because that affects his um, performance. It it um, interferes with um, like erectile dysfunction right. or no libido. Right, but men are very embarrassed by that. Men are very embarrassed mm -hmm. by erectile dysfunction, and so that could be the issue. Um, Seriously, I've been trying really, really hard yeah. to be not offensive. No, it's, it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with him, especially if the issue is around erectile dysfunction. But it's difficult to speculate because we really have, um, I, I don't have all the information from him. But if you hang on, we can, can carry on with this conversation. We're just going to head on out to break. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. I have Sherry on the line. She's been married for 35 years and had, has not had sex for the last 16. Wants to know how to broach that subject. Oh, hi, Sherry. Thanks for staying on the line. No problem. Um, so erection function is a big issue for men. Uh, the men that I see that have it are really embarrassed about it. They don't know what to do about it. It affects their masculinity. I'm not saying that that's what his problem is. I don't know because I haven't spoken to him. But therapy is important, and it doesn't mean that the marriage is over. There are 900,000 divorces, um, right. you know, and... It's it it's it's a gift that you give to yourself, um, and of those nine hundred thousand divorces that occur in the U.S. every year, uh, fewer than ten percent of those couples that divorce ever talk to a professional. Hmm. 
And so couples therapy is very effective today. And it's it's that gift that you, I, I would suggest you give to yourself to get to the bottom of it. And, and then... It sounds like it's worth it because I am ready to walk out the door given the right incentive. And I don't want to live like that. We've spent a lot of time together, um, have an entire history of our lifetime right. that I don't want to throw away. And often I say there's marriage and then there's sex. And they're two different things, but mm-hmm. somebody put them together like a hundred years ago. <laughs> and there's this huge expectation around it, but yeah. you know, um, yeah. And there's a number of things that can go wrong in the bedroom. Right. So, yeah. So you know what? It's worth it if if he if he would go with you. That that's ideal. But go by yourself as well, so you can have the time. How do I go about doing this? Uh, what what do I look up in the yellow pages? Well, you know, why don't you email me, and um, you can choose from a sex therapist or a marriage counselor. Um, you know, depending on where you are, but email me at nurse talk at hotmail dot com, and I'll give you some information. Okay, what was the address again? Oh, nurse talk at hotmail dot com. Excellent. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so it's. Uh, it's important to discuss the issues that you're having in your relationship um, because love is not enough. Because, as I said, in most marriages, after life happens, after you've you know, had the, the $80,000 wedding, you should see me when I see a bride or a groom. I'm like tripping them. You know, wait a minute. Let me talk to you before you do that. Uh, this is the reality about it because it all seems so amazingly wonderful when you're um, spending $100,000 on a wedding and have no money to buy a house. <laughs> I'm not a cynic. Uh, so people think talking about past emotional wounds will only make them worse. Faulkner once said, the past is never dead. It's not even past. It is possible to process past emotional injuries regardless of what happened to you. You can't change the past, but you can change your recollection. You can change the voice in your head. You can change your retelling. You can change your narrative of it. And you release some of the pain when you do talk about it. There's also a myth that better relationships are ones in which people are more independent and less needy of one another. Interdependence is what relationships are all about. In a great relationship, people try to meet one another's needs and they adopt the motto, when you're hurting, darling, the world stops and I listen, baby. Um, You know, if you've got to work at communication, it's... That is just the most important aspect. It is what will make you be a soulmate, okay? Uh, If you have to work at it, it doesn't mean you're not a soulmate. It means you just got to work a little bit more at communication. And that's hard. It's hard for people to talk, to share their feelings, to state their issues. The work in relationships is down-regulating your own defensiveness and listening to your partner. So when you do communicate, it's about listening. It's about hearing what the other person said, actually maybe saying it back to them is helpful. Uh, You know what? Most couples fight about sex, money, and in-laws. And you know what? Those are givens. There's just no way you're not going to have those uh, in your life. And so these are issues that are going to come up uh, frequently. And so unless you actually have these continuous conversations and get onto the same page, even if you have to give up a little bit, um, you know, you want to uh, be 
um, very mindful of this. And, and you know what? Not all relationship conflicts can be resolved. In fact, it's quite the opposite. 69% of relationship conflicts are perpetual. They keep recurring. Do you ever notice that? So what is required is an agreement to disagree. And you hear people say that a lot. Um, we'll agree to disagree on this and move on. And you want to avoid gridlock and resentments. You can have, you're going to have a multitude of different conflicts. Some conflicts are going to be deal breakers. Some are not. And, but it's compatibility. Uh, it's working toward that compatibility from the diversity because you are diverse. Diversity is what makes relationships interesting. So it's not that constant, continuous compatibility, always thinking the same as your partner. Uh, we are not looking for clones. We are... Um, looking for somebody who's the most genetically different from us. So sex is important in a relationship. Finances are important in a relationship. Being on the same page as parents is important in a relationship. Providing a secure home that is free from argument and also putting down your partner or swearing at your partner using um, you know, derogatory names or terms for your partner, sharing your private problems with your children, never healthy. So there are just a few um, issues that, uh, uh, a few rules, a little groundwork to, to lay down. You don't always have to be right. You don't always have to win. And remember, there's a space between getting triggered and your response. And in that space is where you find growth and development. Thank you, Andrew, for a bang up show tonight appreciate all of your help as usual follow me at back to the bedroom on twitter my website back to the bedroom.ca when you stumble on this gravel road of life make it part of your dance i'm maureen mcgrath you've been listening to the sunday night health show you've been listening to a 980 cknw podcast listen live at cknw.com the radio player canada app Tune in, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.